As podcast partner, we're pleased to be able to bring you a selection of the sessions from the festival, including this one with Donna Mulhern and Neil White. Donna journeyed to Baghdad to protest the American bombings, while Neil White went from magazine publisher to federal inmate, incarcerated with an unlikely group of prisoners. They give us a glimpse of their life-changing experiences. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you very much for coming to this session of the Perth Writers' Festival. I'm Mary Faiton. I'm a broadcaster at RTRFM 92.1 Community Radio Station. Atonement, reparation for wrong or injury. Today we meet two authors whose stories embrace atonement from very different perspectives. Before she discovered her true calling, Donna Mulhern was a journalist and political advisor. But her life eventually took a more spiritual path but was redirected rather abruptly in 2003 to Baghdad, where she went to become a human shield, a story she has detailed in her book, Ordinary Courage. Since then, her activism and passion for peace and non-violence has taken her back to Baghdad twice and on a deeply personal journey to make sense of the experience of war. Donna is currently a writer and speaker on non-violence, activism and contemplative spirituality. Please welcome Donna Mulhern. <laughs> Neil White might never have written a book if it weren't for financial difficulties in his Louisiana magazine business that he creatively and illegally covered by check kiting. Landed with a prison sentence, a life that had been all about image and appearances was paired back to absolute basics. In 1993, leaving his wife and two small children in financial difficulty, Neil entered Carville, not just a prison, but the last leper colony in the United States, a place where appearances were nothing. Neil's book, In the Sanctuary of Outcasts, is a memoir of Neil's time at Carville. It's about the people he met there and about the lessons he hopes never to forget. Please welcome Neil White. I'd like to begin with hearing a little bit more about both of your stories. I've barely scratched the surface of either. Donna, perhaps we could start with you in a little of the journey. Thanks, Mary. Um, my journey is an inner journey as well as a physical journey. So on, on face value, this is a book about my experience as a human shield in the war in Iraq. But uh, I've been doing talks about uh, my experience there for the last seven years as people and groups have invited me to come and share that experience. And one of the most common questions I get at the end in, qu in the Q&A time, people put up their hand and say, why did you go? Where were you in your life that you could have made such a decision? What were you thinking? And so I do document that uh, as well uh, in the book. And I remember speaking to a, a high school, I speak a lot in schools, a year 10 boy in a school in Sydney put up his hand and said, miss, miss, why did you go? And so I gave the usual answer about opposing the war, etc. He went, no, 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 really. <laughs> really, why did you go? Thank you. He said, thank you very much for acknowledging the deeper question there. And, uh, and that is a story of my inner journey. And so that's um, that what I guess started it all. So my journey to Baghdad, I would say, began in a Benedictine nunnery in the south of Ireland about six years previously. And that's when an internal transformation happened for me. And... Um, my title, which we might talk about a bit later, it's the story of my title, and that's when I decided to take a step of courage, courage to be who I really am. And then going to Baghdad was an easy decision to make after that. That was the hard decision. And so um, the book is about uh, where I was at before I left, and then it chronicles the, the human shield experiment. It was very much an experiment in the, in the great Gandhian tradition of experimenting with truth in the tradition of nonviolent action, this great, rich, wonderful tradition that we have in the world that is rarely taught or celebrated or discussed uh, in public forums. And uh, the Human Shields were a bunch of pretty uh, ordinary people coming together in a chaotic situation. So you might be surprised if you read it about some of the little squabbles that we had. These peace activists coming to stop a war were at each other's throats <laughs> most of the time. Uh, I talk about the Iraqi people that I met uh, I name them and give them stories, which is something that maybe a lot of people missed out on when we were hearing about Iraq. I describe what Iraq was like, uh, the opposite of my expectation. I had expectations and stereotypes in my mind. What I found was something completely different. We might be able to come to that later. And then, of course, the bombing, the bombing of, of Baghdad. We were placed at, uh, we placed ourselves at uh, critical infrastructure sites to try to protect them from being bombed. Why would that work? 
because of the very sad premise in the world today, which you'll have to acknowledge as being realistic, and that is that our lives are considered more valuable than the lives of others overseas. Us white, Western, privileged, wealthy, educated people. If it's okay to go and bomb and invade other countries because they're Arabs and Muslims and their, name are, their names are Rehab and Mohammed and Ahmed. But what if we went there? This was the premise of the Human Shield Movement. White people, and their names were Karen and Donna and John and Stephen. Well, now that, that would make things much more difficult for the Bush administration to implement its war policies. So we placed ourselves at these sites and then I talk about the, um, the 12 nights, days and nights of the, the shock and awe campaign uh, of Baghdad and what that was like. And then coming home, the last section of the book is, and, and the story is, what happened to me when I got home? And interestingly enough, my publisher says she finds that the most interesting part of the book um, because of the reaction to me by people and by the media when I got home, and that was that I was accused of being a traitor. And one man rang up Talkback Radio and said, if I meet her, I will spit in her face. And so I was very much confronted by this, and I, I, I needed to ask, why, why are these people threatened? by what I did? What is it deep down here? And that's a great question. I'd love to come back to that later because I, I have my theories about what that's all about. And so then I, I battled uh, post-traumatic stress disorder for, the, for the, those months I was back home and I became very ill and then I had to find healing uh, for that. And, uh, and that's the last section of the book and, and uh, I did find that healing eventually. Hello, my journey is... Uh a good bit different than Donna's. She was a self-aware, um, altruistic, uh, wonderful person. I went kicking and screaming to this federal prison leprosarium. Um, as Mary mentioned, my life was about this facade of perfection that uh, I had begun to build in my in my uh, personal life, in my business life, in my life at church. I wanted everyone to think I had everything under, under control. I wanted to do great deeds. I uh, wanted to give a lot of money away, but always get credit for it, that sort of thing. So when I was uh, sentenced to prison, I uh, spent a year in this, uh, in this odd experimental federal prison in the U.S. where the last 130 victims of leprosy in America, who were quite disfigured physically and some emotionally, uh, were housed with 500 federal convicts. Uh, it was a convergence of cultures in the U.S. that uh, I don't think has occurred before or since for this two-year period. And so I found myself uh, standing in front of a woman with no legs who had been there for 68 years because she was susceptible to a bacterial infection. And I was standing before her as uh, someone who actually committed a crime and mishandled $2 million, and I was sentenced there for one year. Uh, it was virtually impossible to muster up self-pity in the face of that. And so this book is about that story of, of those layers and perceptions and, and, and protective mechanisms that we put on ourselves. and I certainly was, was one of the best, those slowly, gradually being chipped away by uh, learning the stories of the, of the people in, who had leprosy and also uh, the inmates. It, it, it's not all a, a sad depressing story. There were some really uh, fun, wonderful, uplifting uh, moments in, in this year that I, I spent there, and there was much comic relief offered by the inmates on, uh, on that side. There was one particular African-American inmate who uh, found out that I didn't have any of the money left from this bank fraud, that I had spent it on uh, you know, payroll and printing and, and other things, and he said, man, I've been in jails all over this country, and you're the stupidest damn criminal I've ever met. <laughs> uh, and that sort of started the tone of our relationship, and he started following me around, asking me questions, and I finally, I was not only the stupidest man he'd ever met, I was the boringest man and the whitest man he'd ever met. And then when he found out my name was Neil White, it was just all over with. So um, it's about that journey and sort of what it took to, for me to get to that rock bottom part uh, of, of this, this year where I took that journalistic microscope and scrutiny that we put on others and for the very first time turned it inward and began to take a look at myself for what I had become. And uh, that's what this story is about. Um, I, I didn't go on a quest to find myself. This was not something that I asked for. It is not something that I wanted. It was uh, an absolute privilege. And uh, it, whether you're religious or not, I consider it uh, a real gift of grace.
to it. I was able to live among the secret people in this secret place, hidden away from most of society. Thank you both for that. One of the things that struck me about both of your stories, even though they are quite different, is the fact that on one level they're the absolute real life and on another, another level they're surreal, exotic situations that, are, you know, that adds to the appeal of the story themselves. Neil, is that what's, did that surrealness strike you as soon as you went into Carville? Oh my gosh, yes. I, I mean, I, I was able to self-surrender to this prison, so I packed a leather bag with racquetball rackets and tennis shoes and <laughs> socks like I was going to camp for uh, a year. And uh, as I was waiting for a guard to come collect me, I saw a man limping down the hallway, and he waved to me, and he had no fingers, and that was sort of the first inkling I had that anything was awry. This was 1993, pre-internet. I thought I was going to a regular prison, but yeah, I, um, you walk in, and you, you see these amazing human beings that nobody else had ever really seen before other than doctors and nurses and a few staff and all of these inmates and I'm telling you they do not send boring people to prison if you have followed the rules and stayed in the guidelines you don't end up there I was there with Jimmy Hoffa's lawyer who delivered the message for JFK to be assassinated I was there with uh, the steroid guru who gave Arnold Schwarzenegger his first steroids and the list just goes on and on and on so immediately I thought well hell you know, I better start taking notes. I'm not going to buy into this inmate crap. I'm going to be an undercover journalist, you know. And uh, th I ended up writing a very different story than that. But, yeah, sure. Yeah, was there, there an element of fear in that for you as well? A bit nervous about your own safety, about what you were about to experience? Sure, sure. Uh, I knew that this was a, a prison where I wasn't going to be afraid for my physical safety. My roommates were a doctor and a banker. I mean, it's, uh, you know, one of those kind of places. But, um, yeah, I was, I, 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 knew I knew that I would uh, be fine. I could survive a federal prison sentence in a minimum security place, but if I were to contract leprosy, uh, being consumed with image, this disfiguring disease, my life would be over. So, yeah, I was, I was terribly afraid at first. Mm. And what did you find out, before, before we move on to Donna's experience at, at the same level, what did you find out about leprosy and, and how did you overcome your fear of that? Well, the only thing that I had ever heard was from the Bible that you, you needed to wear bells or clappers and the underlying message is this is very contagious. I, I think I saw a scene in Ben-Hur on this island where they all went. So I knew nothing about it. I was completely ignorant. And they don't keep inmates informed. Information is power. And so the guards didn't tell us anything about it. But... Um, the more I learned about the disease, the more comfortable I became with it. And once they're on the medication, a multi-drug um, multi therapy, it renders the disease non-communicable. And so I found out in about three weeks I wasn't in any danger of, of contagion. But mm. uh, it's a much misunderstood disease. People don't know a lot about it, and they still don't know how it's passed along. Mm. There's still no vaccine. You still don't know if you've been infected and become, until you become symptomatic. And the incubation period is between 3 and 20 years. I've been out 15. Every time my wife gets a spot on her leg, she goes, damn it, if you've given me leprosy, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> so there's, you know, it, but it, it, I, I, I felt pretty comfortable with it after about three weeks. Donna, you've already said that when you went to Baghdad, it wasn't at all what you expected it to be. It was is far more vibrant and lively, wonderful culture. So, but you were there for a very important and, and, and actually terrifying reason, if you thought about it a lot. Talk to me about the, the, the reality versus the surreality of being there. Yeah, well the, whole, the whole experience was quite surreal. I was about to be bombed uh, in a war that my country was participating in and I didn't believe our country had no reason to be invading this other country. Um, there was no legitimate reason except perhaps disgust at its leadership and that was surreal in itself that... Uh, the entire war happened and that was something that I think everyone around the world was grappling with and I don't know how many people came out onto the streets of Perth in the weeks leading up to the war but there was a hell of a lot, of a lot in Sydney and all over the world and so we were all feeling this angst and then when the bombs started dropping it became more more surreal and especially when uh, uh, the human shields I was stationed with in at the water treatment plant were trying to just cope with that and and get through each day and the way we did that was um, by using our sense of humor and you could imagine it was quite black humor and that was surreal when the bombs were dropping but we were making jokes and the only reason we were making jokes is to try to stop us maybe from shaking so much and I f there was one time when um, a particularly loud and and um 
shattering missile struck that we were making jokes and one of the human shields came in and, and yelled at us saying, you know, we don't know how many people died just then. Um, you better stop laughing. And we were all very chastised, so we all went off in silence. But we didn't know what else to do. What else do you do uh, except um, try to cope with this surreal situation? But it was also surreal because the people in Iraq that somehow our governments tried to portray as somehow different to us or dangerous, etc., are not and were not and are not. And that was surreal as well. The people in Iraq are more like you than you will ever know. And so before I went to Iraq, I didn't know much about it. Perhaps you're, you were like me. All I knew was what had come through the media. So we knew about Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein. That's all we know about the place. The first Gulf War back in 1991, the UN sanctions. If you're really keeping up with it, you would have known about the effect of the United Nations sanctions. That's all I knew about Iraq. So my expectations were quite low. I expected a place that there was a lot of misery, there was a lot of suffering, there was a lot of oppression. They lived under this maniac dictator. I thought it was a religious fundamentalist country. I don't know why, I just did. So I, I imagined a place where shrouded women and frowning men and nobody was having any fun. And that was Iraq. And so when I got there, and this was my expectation, within 24 hours, not only did I realise my expectations were wrong, but the, in fact the opposite was true. So the truth was that Iraq was a very uh, secular society. Uh, bottle shops on every second corner selling beer, wine and spirits. The women were not shrouded. They were very glamorous, very attractive, a little bit um, obsessed with beauty were the men and the women. Iraqi people are very good-looking people and there's a beauty parlour on every second corner next to the bottle shop. <laughs> but the men frequent the beauty parlours more than the women <laughs> in order to be shaved and plucked and looking terribly handsome and they were terribly handsome and they knew it. They were very proud of their beauty, very proud of their culture and so there was um, a, a very highly cultured society, highly educated, highly literate. At one stage Iraq had the highest rate of PhDs and master's degrees in the world. That was in the 70s. Uh, everyone went to, to do their master's and PhDs because it, the longer you studied uh, you'll put off being uh, recruited to go to, to the army. So everybody studied for many, many years. And so, you know, there, there's a love of music, a love of the arts. So you walk down the street and there's cafes um, out on the streets and you can hear Middle Eastern music one minute, then you hear, you know, Britney Spears the next. Not that that's a good thing, but that's just how it was. And then there's poetry readings by the River Tigris and there's National Theatre in the centre of town. Then there's the ballet on Friday night, the orchestra on Saturday night. And this was the life of a middle-class Iraqi, um, quite wealthy, quite well off. And... Um, this great sense of life and vibrancy and colour and celebrating life and staying human and a wonderful sense of humour. Very cheeky, cheeky people. You could imagine the wonderful jokes they had about uh, George Bush and the US invasion. And of course they were aware of the irony that the rest of the world we're not aware of because we're not, uh, we, don't, we don't, I guess, go out of our way to learn about the geopolitics of other countries. But when, when the US started talking about Saddam Hussein, they were like, oh, you want to talk about Saddam Hussein, do you? Well, let's talk about Saddam Hussein and the way the United States emboldened him and empowered him during the 1980s with political aid, military aid and economic aid in the war against Iran. You want to talk about Saddam Hussein? Well, you've made him our problem. And the irony of that didn't quite reach the rest of the world, but the Iraqis felt it very, very much. Mm. And so I was in this place that our country was about to bomb full of these people who I loved and who were just like us. You know, Iraq is very technologically advanced. So in a theatre, a university in Iraq would just look just like this. You know, the teenagers are just the same as our teenagers. The, the, the same kind of a life, you know, social life, sports, study, arts, literature, etc. And I just wished Alexander Downer or John Howard would come for a day and meet these people. And so that was surreal, that the, civ the civilization that I felt, the sophistication of these people was never acknowledged uh, because there were all these stereotypes. And, th and the way they hosted us, the hospitality in the Middle East, if you've ever been there, and all of you will know if you've been there, is very overwhelming. But in Iraq it was like this as well. The, the reception we were given as, as human shields was very, very moving. We were invited for tea uh, in every house every five minutes and when you're invited for tea it's usually five teas lots of cake and then lunch and then dinner and then well you stay the night and then we we called hospitality in iraq hostage fatality because <laughs> when you go somewhere for tea you just don't know when you're going to come home 
And so this was surreal. We were human beings relating to each other as human beings and our countries were about to hurt these people and that was devastating and it was heartbreaking. And they lived like this in spite of this dictator Saddam Hussein. It was the most amazing thing. Why did I have such expectations? Because maybe I would have been miserable. Maybe we would have been if we didn't uh, have the freedom of speech because that was the main impact that he had on their lives. They couldn't speak freely. But if you kept your mouth shut, well, you knew how to survive under Saddam. But now, uh, we won't get, might get to that later, now you can't survive in Iraq. You know, there are many dangers in Iraq. But back then, if you kept your mouth shut, you could survive. So I found a great sense of humanity there. And the fact that that was going to be destroyed was, I guess, what brought me my most uh, surreal reflections. Mm. Donna, you've, you've started to touch on, on the relationships that you formed when you were there and, and, and the relationships are intrinsic in both of your stories to, to the journey that was. Um, perhaps I could just ask you first, Donna, about how you, you were saying that when the, the first lot of human shields came to Baghdad after you, you felt a surge of love for these people you hadn't even met before because you were on the same path. But things, as you hinted at earlier, didn't turn out exactly as you thought. It wasn't all hearts and flowers, was it? No. It was when we all converged in Jordan. Uh, I, I was one of the first to arrive in Jordan and then there was a plane load coming from the UK, about 30 human shields. And I remember when we went out to meet them at the airport and they had, they were brimming with enthusiasm and brimming with the confidence of this mission that we would stop the war. And we went back to the hotel and everyone was of like mind and everyone shared the same conviction and I loved them all. They were all so inspiring and, and they were all so courageous and they all had these wonderful stories and these motivations. They'd left a lot behind. And I did love them all. It probably took 24 hours <laughs> because we had our first meeting that night and then the personalities start to arise. Uh, our major problem was we had at least five or six languages going at every meeting. So the Human Shields came from about 25 different countries. Our youngest was 19, uh, students from Barcelona. Our eldest was 85-year-old American grandmother, Larissa. And so we had everyone in between, Korea, Japan, all the, the European countries, and so we had a lot of translating. So we had easygoing types and we had difficult types. We had egos and we had power plays. We had started having arguments about who was in charge and why were they in charge. And I don't like that they're in charge. And then uh, we had the debate which I called the Great Baghdad Letterhead Debate. And that is I became the media officer and I was putting out press releases and the found well, the self-appointed founder of the movement that was disputed, wanted his logo at the top. And another Human Shield didn't want that logo. They wanted the other logo, the Italian one. And I was in the middle of this debate and it was infuriating for me because this was the main argument of the day mm. for, which consumed a lot of our attention for so mm. long. So we had to tolerate a lot of different personalities <laughs> and that was, that was a bit strange. Neil, though the relationships you formed at Carville were probably ones that will impact on you for the rest of your life. Tell us about some of those. Well, um, I made great friends with, with a number of the, the leprosy patients. Most of them were in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. They, they had been confined uh, and treated like criminals in, in the early part of the century. They were often brought at gunpoint uh, by paid drivers they called the bounty hunter, they were not allowed to vote. They were not allowed to marry. If a woman became pregnant, the child was taken away, put in a foster home. Uh, their mail was baked in a huge oven before it was released to the public to prevent contagion. They're just their their life story were were just amazing. And so um, I got to know them because they felt a real bond with us. Although we had committed crimes, they saw us being treated in a similar fashion the way that uh, that they were. And so. Um, Ella Bounds, the woman I alluded to earlier who was 80 years old, she had no legs. She had an antique hand-cranked wheelchair, and she maneuvered through the hallways of the colony and would look at you and say, there's no place like home. Don't forget to go to church. I mean, she was just this amazing spirit of a woman who had every right to be bitter about her life but was just full of, of love and energy and, and uh, had this great aura about her. And she was probably my best friend. I had, had some others as well. But she was someone for whom if I had met on the outside, I would have passed her right by and never given her a second thought thinking she had nothing to offer me. I might have even handed her some money to feel good about myself. And when I look back on that, I, I'm appalled at, at, that that was my worldview but I felt so lucky that I couldn't get away. I was incarcerated, and I had this job in the kitchen 
where she was every morning really early. And we had, we began this great, although unlikely friendship. She was 80 African-American. I was 32 and white. She was weak of body, strong of spirit. I was just the opposite. And she not only nudged me and guided me, but, but she was a great example for me when I left and how to live with this label of ex-con and that stigma that goes with it and the way that she never accepted the stigma of leprosy, that she was uh, multidimensional and a wonderful woman. But she had this great sense of humor, too. I remember one time I was complaining about how much time and energy on the outside uh, that I had spent keeping up this facade of perfection. And uh, she said, well, you ain't got to worry about that no more. You know, it's, it's stating the obvious, she she did things like uh, she told me, you know, what other people thinks ain't none of your business, which I went back and thought about for a long time. Uh, she she was really just an amazing woman, um, and so when I got out, I tried to emulate her instead of uh, you know my former idols were the men and women on the cover of Fortune and Forbes magazine, and when I got out, I uh, I tried to be like Ella. I've forgotten a lot, but tried to uh, live like she did with. You know, here I am. Here's what happened. Uh, I'm doing doing my best, and uh, I hope you'll accept me. And and people were very forgiving. And she's been a, a great great model for me. I want to ask you both about atonement from your that your two very different perspectives. And one of the things that crossed my mind, Neil, is that this happened 17 years ago. You did your time. You've had to go back out into the world and figure out how to live your life with with this shame behind you of what what happened with the business. And now I wonder whether you feel that you've actually gone past the time where you need to atone for that, where you actually need to move on, or whether you will always have a sense of that need to say sorry. Well, that's a that's a really interesting question. It's one I struggle with all the time, and it was one I struggled with about whether or not this book should be published. I, I knew I wanted to write it, but I wasn't sure it was the right thing to put it out there. I didn't want to hurt anybody else by recreating this scenario, this scene, telling my side of the story for the people I hurt before. But um, to answer your question, it is a very fine balance, I think, and it's and it's a very dangerous area for someone like me. I don't know if any of you know psychology, but uh, generally, with lots of qualifiers, people fall into two categories, people who generally suffer from a neuroses and blame themselves for anything that goes wrong, or generally a character disorder where you blame others or the world. Everything would have been fine if they'd left you alone. There were no neurotics in this prison. It was all character disorders, including me. And so you're like your own best customer. You are, you are full of pride and bravado, and you, bel- you have this inordinate belief in yourself. So the first thing I did when I was headed to prison was I went to my priest at the Episcopal Church, and he said, I know this is going to be hard, but ask God for forgiveness. Ask the people you hurt for forgiveness with no expectation. And then he said, and you have to forgive yourself. And uh, he had no idea for someone in my mindset how easy and convenient that seemed. So um, there, I have to be very careful about it always, but you do have to forgive yourself because if you carry around that shame, that that cripples you you're no good for anybody to make amends to the people you hurt for your family or for your children but forgiving yourself doesn't mean that you forget you always remember and you do what you can do to make amends in whatever way and fashion you can and and that's okay I mean it's it's not it's not a burden it's just a fact it's Mm -hmm. a fact of life and um, if I could go back I would undo it to not hurt the people I hurt but uh, that not being a possibility, uh, I wouldn't change the experience that I had and my children had. And, uh, you know, I'll just do what the best I can to uh, to be good to those people. Mm. Although you mentioned earlier on today that your intent going into prison wasn't really to atone. It was just to do time to start off with. But I noted through, the, as, as I was reading the book, I got about halfway through and found that I was dog-earing the pages where you started to make a change you started to make a shift you you wrote uh, you understood at one point that you were in there for lying that you weren't going to lie anymore that you recalled uh, bad treatment during your childhood of the first african-american guy to move into your neighborhood it, it started to happen almost without your help or desire yeah, no, I was I was very reluctant. I did I did not go on a quest to discover myself. No, this is not this book. And and I've 
I have all, uh, I've tried to remember. Um, in fact, I was uh, detained at customs on my way in here because on the little form it said, have you ever been convicted of a crime? And I checked yes. Um, they were quite suspicious for a while, but uh, we, we made friends and they asked me to sign a book for them. It was really nice. <laughs> but, um, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, the, the changes were subtle, and, and I, I am very suspect, and I can come back to this later, I, I wouldn't mind reading two paragraphs, but I am very suspect, uh, and this may just be my cynicism, of people who, for whom transformation is drastic and fast and overwhelming and 180 degrees. I, I, think, I think that changes, if they're genuine, start very small, and then living that way every day just a little bit differently can lead to a different life. But um, toward the end of my sentence, I, I, I didn't believe that I had really changed. Everybody kept telling me I had to change. Um, and I wanted to, to change, but um, there, was a, there was a point in the spring toward the end of the book where the leprosy patients had a dance. And this was when the prison was closing and the guards had lost interest in us. And so Ella asked me to stick around for the first song for their dance, and so I did. I pushed her around in her wheelchair. And another inmate who was with me, two of them, got in the middle of the leprosy patients, and they were big and strong and had long hair and got too close to one of their dates. And at the end of the, the dance, this leprosy patient pointed what was left of his index finger and said, you know, you're not invited. No inmates at our party. And as we were walking back to our side of the colony, my roommate said, did we just get kicked out of a leper dance? <laughs> Which, which you might think is a low point, but I was lying in my cot that night, having always wanted to be in the Guinness Book of World Records, saying, this may have never <laughs> happened before in the history of mankind. You know, it was, it was pretty appalling. And, um, and so uh, Ella, this wise woman, told me a story after that that I may, I may read later. It's not appropriate to read it now. Okay, I will. Like so <laughs> yeah. it, it's three paragraphs. So anyway, the next morning I ran into Ella and I told her, you know, I'd be leaving soon and that, you know, I hadn't really changed. I was still seeking accolades, and, you know, I wasn't a different person. And she said, uh, you is what you is. She took a deep breath and looked across the inmate courtyard. You know about them drink bottles, she asked? No. Ella intertwined her fingers like she always did when she told the story. In the early days of Carvel, she explained, the Coca-Cola distributor from Baton Rouge sent chipped and cracked Coke bottles to the colony so he could refuse to accept the return bottles. He feared a public boycott if customers discovered the glass containers had been touched by the lips of leprosy patients. More drink bottles than you've ever seen, she said. The crates of bottles filled closets and storerooms, but the patients discovered new uses for the non-returnable bottles. They used them as flower vases with beautiful arrangements. They became sugar dispensers in the cafeteria. For impromptu bowling games on the lawn, the bottles were used as pens. They were turned upside down and stuffed into the dirt to line flower beds and walks on the Carville grounds. Coca-Cola bottle, still a Coca-Cola bottle, Ella said. Just found them a new purpose. Donna. Atonement, from your perspective, comes from a very different angle, doesn't it? I, I wonder, is it the, the lingering sense of what we owe the Iraqi people for what's happened to them? Um, yeah, we certainly um, do owe them a lot. What, and what, what we owe them, firstly, I would say, is to learn, for once and for all, to learn from history and um, not allow, allow ourselves to repeat this terrible crime, this terrible situation, again. Uh, I'm not confident that our um, world leaders are at that point, to be honest, because there are other motivations in place as to why governments uh, go to war other than uh, motivations that are good and wholesome. So what, 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 can we, what can we say to the Iraqi people now other than, other than that we are uh, so deeply sorry and other than acknowledging, I think acknowledgement is really very important. And so when Australia withdrew their troops from Iraq, I often wish that Kevin Rudd had given a speech to go with it that just acknowledged that that was a mistake and acknowledged the, uh, that the invasion was not legal nor morally legitimate 
and in the same way that um, we need to be acknowledging the traditional owners of, of the land here in, in Australia, etc., etc. So just that acknowledgement is really important. And when we walked through the hospital wards uh, during the war and standing at the bedsides of children whose bodies had been ripped to pieces and their mothers were standing nearby and um, they would look at us and what what do you say? What can you say to that mother who d- doesn't know if her little girl is going to survive the day um, except I'm sorry and to acknowledge that, that, that this was wrong and to grieve with her and it would be wonderful if the world community could find the courage uh, to do that and to, to come to a place where we acknowledge our moral bankruptcy as well. Uh, that my favourite part of Neil's book, if I can just re- reflect back to him, uh, my thoughts about his journey. I told Neil last night I didn't like him in the first half of the book <laughs> at all. <laughs> he, he was someone, as he's already described, chasing status and money and materialism and I just, I know those type of people and I don't like them. And uh, when I started to like him was when he was at his lowest and he was broken. And that was because of a particular point along his journey um, where he felt he may lose his family. And that put him to rock bottom and then he started to question everything that he'd done and his motivations. And then I think he started to see. And that's what we need to do, isn't it, to see May we see each other. May we see the reality, the situations. May we pay attention. I love the word vigil. To, to be on vigil means to, to be awake and to pay attention. And so um, Neil's journey then took a, a beautiful turn. I think this journey of, of self-awareness uh, came in, in, in stages along the way. And so that I guess that reflects part of my journey as well. Before I went to Iraq, I had a, a, a bit of a shake-up. I don't wish tragedy or trauma upon anybody but often unfortunately people who hold rigid views or have set set ways of thinking need something to shake them up now I don't know what it's going to take to shake up the society that we live in to finally stand up and say we have had enough of war and violence I don't know what it's going to take how many Iraqi kids have to die how many kids from Gaza 322 just a year ago slaughtered how many american soldiers numbering in the thousands now how many how many years more do we have to endure this before we start to resist war not protest i think we've gone beyond protesting because it's very convenient to protest well our governments love it you can you have your protest we'll have our war thank you very much and it all goes on and on and on we need to reach the point of resisting war and say enough is enough and that I believe is the only way that we can atone to the people that we have hurt, we being collectively the Western governments uh, of the world, et cetera, et cetera, to not allow it to happen again, but to acknowledge it first, to acknowledge that betrayal against them. One of the ways that you convey to many people who wouldn't understand truly what we need to atone for is by telling some of those deeply personal stories of individuals that you either knew or came across in Iraq. And I'm thinking of of the young girl in hospital dying of leukaemia. I'm thinking of the the man who was leaving his home when it was blown apart with his family in it. Would you mind sharing maybe one or two of those Mm. stories so people can start to understand really what you experienced? Yeah, I'll share the story of Arian, who's um, the little girl with leukaemia I met in the hospital. And this reflects um, Neil's... um, discovery about being who you really are and um, that was an important lesson for me. Um, I'll just give a a warning. Um, uh, In writing this book I spent five years crying and um, I have never read this passage without crying. Now the thing is I have plenty of tissues on hand (laughs) and I'm happy to share them with you and maybe we can hug each other later Um, but feel free to join me because um, I don't. I don't feel any need to try to to withhold that. So we'll see how we go because it was a very uh, um, moving episode. So the situation is that we were 
uh, walking through uh, the children's ward at uh, one of Baghdad's hospitals. Uh, and before then I was talking about the impact of depleted uranium that had been used widely in the first Gulf War by US forces back in 1991. I'm given the opportunity to witness firsthand the effects of depleted uranium and the impact of the international sanctions on Iraq's health system when a group of us visit the main children's hospital in Baghdad. Here, in crowded wards, families gather around the beds of skeletal, bald children dying in pain without access to the medicines they need. No smiles, no toys, no balloons and no treatment. What did my little boy do to George Bush to deserve this? One mother asks us, and then another. It's a harrowing visit. Every child's face, every cry, every step wrenches me about. Many of us can't even speak. It's in this hospital that I meet Arian. She's a 12-year-old Iraqi girl lying on a bed stained with blood in the leukemia ward. In a few days, she'll be dead. She shouldn't be preparing for death. Neither should another 800 Iraqi children in hospitals with leukemia. The doctors tell us that in any given week, an average of three new patients are admitted to hospital with leukemia. Before the war in 1991, it was just one patient every few months. Arian's lips are cracked and bleeding. She can't close her mouth because it's full of dry, dark red blood. Her skin is pale and sickly, in some places grey. Her head almost bald but for a few tired wisps of brown hair. She's been sick for a year and a half. At first her eyes are closed. Her father holds oxygen over her mouth. Her mother strokes her forehead. A limp needle lies in her arm in a pool of blood. Her hands and fingers are bloated. I stand by the end of her bed, numb with grief. Arian hasn't received chemotherapy, a doctor explains. Her family can't afford such specialist treatment, nor do they have access to medication that would ease her pain so she can die in dignity. The UN sanctions have made sure of that, blocking the importation of a range of much-needed medicines. Standing at the foot of Arian's bed, it all comes into clear, sharp focus. The crime against these kids, the complicity of my country in supporting the sanctions, the fact that nobody cares. By now, my whole body is trembling. I let the tears fall freely down my face. I stand with her family, her father, mother and aunt, and they receive me graciously and try to comfort me. They hurry to get me a chair and a tissue. I can't speak Arabic with them, but the gesture of holding my hand to my heart and then out to them seems to express what I so desperately want to say. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. The system I am part of created this. I'm so sorry. Arian's mother wipes her tears with one hand and holds my hand with the other. Perhaps she accepts my apology. I make it on behalf of myself, my friends, my community, the Western world, but it's not enough. I just can't stop crying. After a while, Arian opens her eyes. She looks straight at me. Her eyes are soft, hazel, but curious, piercing. You could imagine her surprise at seeing a weeping white woman at the end of her bed. I move around to the side of her bed closer to her, her eyes follow me. I hold her gaze for a few moments until I can't take it anymore. I have no answers. My eyes must be full of fear and hopelessness. I feel there is nothing I can offer her. My group heads towards the next ward, but I can't move. I feel powerless and it has paralysed me. I continue to sit there with Arian and her family. I want to be strong, but my constant stream of tears gives away the turmoil inside of me. I think of what I could offer her, my education, my resources, my enthusiasm, my convictions. All of these are reduced to nothing in the face of depleted uranium. I can do nothing to save Arian. I lean closer to her and touch her skin. She manages a smile for me, but the pain of her cracked lips won't let her hold it for long. But it doesn't matter. I can see it in her eyes, her lovely hazel eyes that shine with a courage. Then she does the most remarkable thing. She reaches out to touch my arm as though she wants to say something. Somehow she seems to know what's going through my mind. Her eyes are focused on mine and full of expression. Hey, come on, they seem to say to me as she squeezes my arm softly. Don't just cry. Don't just sit there overwhelmed. How is that going to help me? Despair does no good. What help are you to anyone like this? She continues to hold me with her eyes, strong and determined. After some moments of this connection, it's exchanged between us without words. The strength in her eyes inspires me to take a deep breath and wipe my eyes to stand up and somehow walk on. At Arian's bedside, 
I lost all hope in myself and the world. And then, somehow, she brought it back again. This little Iraqi girl from Basra. Body riddled with leukemia, who I so desperately want to save, need to save, for she saved me. I think of who I am, of what I can do. I'm a journalist. I can write. I've got a mouth. I can speak. I promise that I will tell her story. That's something I can do. Um, the book is de dedicated to the memory of O. I think the message in that for me was, isn't despair a luxury sometimes? What a luxury. We sit there feeling sorry for ourselves. We're so powerless. You know, we look at the world and we think, we watch the news at night and think, well, gee, that's miserable. There's this issue and there's that issue. And, oh, my God, you know, I can't do anything about that. There's nothing that I can do. So guess what? We do nothing. Despair is a luxury. It debilitates us. It keeps us powerless. The way to overcome that, in, in my opinion, is to search and explore who we are and realise what it is we can do. I, I, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to save her. I wanted to give her medicines. And for years I've, um, I've felt a failure because I've, I'm a journalist. You know, I started working at 21 at newspapers and I kept resigning every two years to go to Africa to do volunteer work because I'm only a journalist, I just wanted to do something much more um, that, that would save people. And it took uh, this little girl um, to say, well, maybe that's what you can do, you know. Don't go around feeling sorry for yourself. Just be who you really are. Um, take whatever shape the Coke bottle needs to. Um, and that's your contribution to peace and justice mm. in the world. So... I think it's an inappropriate time to ask you both about your faith because your faith, it, it plays a part in, in both of your stories um, and it certainly sustains you. Perhaps, Neil, you could talk about uh, how valuable that was to you during your time in prison. Sure. Um, I was um, an Episcopalian before I went to Carville. In fact, I was the senior warden at my church when all of this happened. It was quite the scandal. Um, and... I um, For me, church was integrally tied to that image that I wanted to project. And so I was there every Sunday, and I was there in the nicest clothes I could have, and I was very proud to be walking in with my family. And, uh, you know, I gave lots of money to the church. And then Monday I would go to work and write a check to myself from myself for $400,000 that didn't exist. Um, and what I was doing was I was keeping church in Sunday, and I wasn't bringing it into, into Monday. And when I went to Carville, um, there was the Catholic Church there uh, had the tradition closest to the, the Anglican faith. Um, the Catholic priest told us four of us were Episcopalians in the prison, which I think bodes pretty well for that denomination out of 500. But he, he told us that uh, we could come to the Catholic Church and take communion, even though he was not supposed to really serve us. And um, it, was, it was one of the few places in prison where guards weren't looking over your shoulder. It was amazing to be in this church shaped like a cross, segregated, the leprosy patients on the left side of the cross, the inmates in the middle, and the nuns from the Sisters of Charity on the right, and to take communion, kneeling at the altar, and to watch Father Reynolds serve communion to the leprosy patients, many of whom had no knees and couldn't kneel, many of whom were blind and lost sensation in their hands, couldn't feel when the wafer was put on their palm. Uh, to, to be in that church service with them uh, was just extraordinary. And they embraced the church, even though for centuries the church uh, had ousted anyone who had leprosy. There used to be what was called the leper's mass, where when someone contracted the disease, there was a ceremonial burial where they actually dug a grave put in the belongings of the person who was standing outside the community or the, or the, the camp, and they were forever banished. Uh, so it was, it was just a, a, an amazing, amazing place. Uh, and so I, I, I started listening. I was really paying attention. It wasn't about me being in a nice suit at church. It was me in a green prison uniform surrounded by men and women who couldn't hide their disfigurement that 
uh, you know, I could finally see my own. And uh, it was it was an amazing experience. And mm-hmm. so I've tried to find a church that, for me, and I'm not being critical of people who go to Sunday church and dress up. Please don't take that. I'm not, I'm not passing judgment, and they're probably not all, uh, you know, uh, like me. But uh, so I found a, a church when I got out that was uh, very different. Mm-hmm. Donna, your faith underpins your work to this day. Mm. Yes, I'm inspired by the radical Christian tradition of social justice and nonviolence and the teaching we have, love your enemies, um, do good to those who hate you, not invade their countries and occupy them for seven years. And so it's been um, working out what that all means. It, it, I mean, that's a bit hard, isn't it? Love your enemies. and But um, something that I've been exploring uh, for the last um, few years, it's a, as I said, it's very radical teaching, very challenging, but we have a great uh, tradition and uh, one of my inspirations is St Francis of Assisi and uh, throughout the book I, I quote and, and especially at the beginning my, my prayer, my desire, my, my cry was Lord make me an instrument of your peace where there is hatred let me bring love etc etc. Some of you may know the prayer if you don't. Uh, it's a very beautiful piece of writing but it's also very radical. I say to school kids when I go into Catholic schools and speak, I say, you know, you want to pray the prayer of St. Francis? Oh, that's risky. I dare you to. So because if you pr- pray that sincerely, if you pray that honestly, you don't know where you're going to end up. You know, whether it's hatred, let me bring love. Whether it's despair, hope. Whether it's darkness, light. You're saying where it's, it's awful and crappy and there's bad things happening, send me. I'll go and bring the light. Turn on the light. And so... But, yeah, as you say, you don't know where you're going to end up. I ended up in Baghdad, and I, f- I feel St. Francis was delighted um, by that. So I have an interior spirituality. I'm, com- I'm a contemplative, so I call myself a contemplativist uh, in the spirit of St. Francis. So I spend a lot of time nourishing my, my interior spirituality, and I do that through the practice of Christian meditation, meditation in the Christian tradition. It's a long, rich tradition going back to, well, I believe teacher uh, Jesus was a teacher of um, con- con- contemplative prayer, but also the ancient desert fathers and mothers in Egypt who, who had this practice. And so it's basically a practice of stillness and silence and simplicity. And it was when I discovered that in 1998 uh, in the Benedictine nunnery in Ireland that um, things changed for me um, on, on the inside. And so then, well, nothing's really the same after that when you discover this divinity within you rather than rules and all these sorts of church structures became almost irrelevant. It was like the divinity within you and how to express that. And so uh, delving deeper into the, the teaching of nonviolence was um, where I was at when I, when I heard the call to Baghdad. So very much um, responding to the human shield call was putting my money where my mouth was, basically. It was trying to express these beliefs and it was a chance for me to live the prayer. And so I was, I was very grateful uh, for that. But, yeah, you're right, to this day, um, a lot of people ask me how, because uh, I, I still spend time in, in war zones. I've just come back from Gaza. I was in Gaza in January. I spent four months in the West Bank of Palestine with the International Solidarity Movement. That's an issue I'm very, very passionate about, the conflict in the Holy Land. And this, these, it's always traumatic. It's always, you get very angry when you go to these places and see such blatant uh, human rights abuses and then you come back home and nobody... Nobody, I mean, our governments don't really care about breaches of international law, etc. Or now they're all of a sudden interested in Mossad agents using passports. <laughs> and, you know, why aren't they concerned about 322 get dead Gazan children? You know, but how, how do you cope with this uh, all the time and this despair that, that could take you over? And, and for me, um, this um, spirituality that I have, this interior spirituality of going within, uh, and it's the only place um, some days where love is greater than hate and that um, peace and joy and beautiful things win over the despair of the world. And so it's a place I need to be going regularly. Mm. Uh, My teacher, Jesus actually, uh, suggested this when uh, in in one verse he said, you know, when you're stressed out and when you're really busy and things are getting on top of you, he said, you know, consider the lilies of the field and the creatures of the air. In other words, think about flowers, you know, look at birds, you know, contemplate beauty. You know, how are we going to survive in a world of ugliness and hatred? Uh, remember the beauty and focus on the beauty. 
reflect on the beauty in the world and that's what my spirituality is about. Donna and Neil, I'm appalled. I've just looked at my watch and it's five minutes to six and I only have 112 questions left. <laughs> but I suspect there are questions from the audience that people would like to, to put out there. Um, we do have a microphone. You can, um, take, uh, right behind you, actually. Um, Donna, you've chosen the radical, uh, non-violent approach. How do you then feel about those who choose the opposite? for example, a terrorist who may have a very just cause, freedom fighter or terrorist? Yeah, I would, um, I oppose terrorism in all its forms. So I oppose war as terrorism and I oppose, um, um, for example, suicide bombing or et cetera, et cetera, as terrorism as well. It's both um, innocent people dying as, um, as a result of violence for a political motive. So I would put, you know, war is just taxpayer funded state-sanctioned terrorism, but the result is the same. Innocent people killed for political mo motive. In 2005, I was part of a group of um, six Christian pacifists. We called ourselves Christians Against All Terrorism, and we went to Pine Gap um, military spy base in the middle of Australia's desert, which is run by the CIA, and it helps to assist the United States in its wars uh, around the world. It's a travesty on the face of Australia's uh, land. It, um, it's unaccountable to anyone in Australia. No member of parliament is allowed to go there, let alone know what happens. It's a satellite receiving station, so it's um, very crucial to America's wars. So we went there trying to make the point that that violence in this in this way is, is actually all terrorism. So I would I would condemn uh, a Hamas suicide mission uh, as much as I would condemn an Israeli government uh, an Israeli missile falling into Gaza. I would condemn them equally, and I would um, urge um, all sides of, of any conflict to um, express uh, their message uh, through non-violent means. Let's face it, it works. You know, non-violent direct action has succeeded time and time again to depose colonial governments, to depose dictators, to win human rights, to win civil rights, etc., etc. I don't need to give you a history lesson, but I tell you what, I wished our kids learnt this at school. Gandhi, Martin Luther King, the people of the Philippines, the people of the former Yugoslavia, the people of many um, countries in Latin America, I could go on and on and on. So if I had the ear of Hamas, I would say, you know, I believe you would be more successful in your policies by using non-violent ways of resisting the occupation. Yeah, Donna, I just, I was um, interested to know if you had a theory on, on on why uh, America and its allies invaded Iraq? Well, my theory is as good as any other theories, but I'll just take the point of view maybe of Iraqis, so just as uh, something to, to throw in there. Uh, the Iraqi people uh, used to scoff at the suggestion of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, they could barely get the lights on, let alone build such sophisticated weapons, so they were aware that they didn't exist. And then, the, again, all of a sudden, the, the reason changed halfway through, oh, oh it's all about Saddam, Again, they scoffed at that for, for obvious reasons. There's just total inconsistency in that, in that reason given. And so we have to look at the reality that people were in the United States and policy bodies were talking about the invasion and occupation of Iraq many, many years before. And it was about geopolitics. It was about the region. It was about having a base in the Middle East. It was about Iran. It was about Israel. It was about the natural resources of the Middle East and having access and control to those in the long term, namely oil and other mineral resources. So the Iraqi people believe um, that, that they were unfortunately on a piece of land that was valuable. Um, Neil, um, a corporate crime, I don't know much about it, but is prison the answer? Boy, that's a great question. Um, prison, uh, for me, Carville was a wonderful place to go, but I think it was because of the leprosy patients and that image, and, and, queer, and the image didn't mean anything to them. It was what was important was on the inside. Um, the Bureau of Prisons in the United States, there is no rehabilitation. They will tell you, we're not going to be charged with rehabilitating you, inmate, because you'll just go out and blame us when you do this again. And so their position is they warehouse you, they, they, they fulfill the punishment, and uh, if you have anything to say about improving your life, it's, it's up to you. Everybody in that prison, I would say, needed something different. And whenever you legislate or dictate policy for individuals, it's gonna be at the lowest common denominator. Um, 
I don't know if prison is the answer, but uh, it, it didn't work for many. I think it worked for some, and, and Carville was a unique place. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't have the answer for that. It's very complicated. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much for being here this afternoon, and I, I hope that you've enjoyed uh, meeting Neil White and Donna Muldoon. Please thank them. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast recorded at the 2010 Perth Writers Festival. If you'd like to hear other sessions from the festival, go to abc.net.au slash Perth slash Writers Festival.